Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, I have been looking forward to uh, this this, uh, Sunday for some time as we're starting uh, a four-week series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And um, I, I, I have, uh, Wayne and, and Robert and I have been spending the past couple weeks uh, preparing this. In fact, um, Wayne has prepared, Wayne Sheely, one of our pastors, who's actually um, administering to our kids this morning, but Wayne has prepared for us a discussion guide that is the first time we've done this, and uh, there are discussion guides that pertain to this message and Ruth chapter 1 that are on the information desk out in the foyer. Particularly, they are for LifePoint group leaders, and so if you have a LifePoint group that's kind of based on discussion of the sermon, uh, we really encourage you. That was emailed to you, by the way, but if you didn't get that, you can go pick up those LifePoint or those discussion guides. But also, that, would be, uh, that discussion guide would be a great thing for you uh, to just take and work through this chapter after this message with a friend or with your family. Fathers, it's a great little discussion guide to to help lead your family in, uh, around this text. And so we want to make Sunday mornings more than just kind of a flyover where we drop a few you know, carpet bombs and then we move on to something else. We want, we want to really go deep in this text. And one of the things that we're going to start doing with Wayne's help is preparing for each Sunday, not just in Ruth, but in all of our messages, a discussion guide for us as a church, life point groups, families, whatever, to work our way through. And so we find ourselves today in the book of Ruth. Now, a couple things as you're finding Ruth. It's, I think, the eighth book in the Bible. So you have the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua, then Judges, and then Ruth. It's, it's early on in the Old Testament. And um, if you're newer to the church, we mention this a lot, that it is our custom here to just work our way through books of the Bible. So we spent quite a bit of time working through uh, 1 Corinthians. Now we're in Ruth, and I think, Lord willing, after Ruth, we'll get into a New Testament book, probably Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but don't hold me to that. I'm not quite, we're not quite settled on that yet. But today we begin a four-week journey through this beautiful Old Testament letter. Okay, now a couple of things before we begin, before I pray, and before we work through Ruth chapter 1. Now, um, Ruth, a couple, just a, one challenge about this story is that it's a short book. You could read these four chapters in probably 10 or 15 minutes. It's one of the most beautiful, shorter than that. It's one of the most beautiful stories, not only in the Bible, but just literary experts see this letter, or th- not this letter, but this book, this story, as one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in, in, in the world. And here's the challenge about this book, though, as we're going to take four weeks to work through it, is that if you um, have read the book of Ruth, you already know what is at the end of the book of Ruth, how this ends well. And so uh, one way we could handle this is to jump ahead to Ruth or just cover it all in one setting and, and just kind of miss some of the tension and the strain and, and, and just the power of these early chapters. And so, by the way, if you, if you have never read the book of Ruth, or you're not yet a Christian, you're just here checking this out, or, or maybe you haven't been in church for a long time, or you're just completely unfamiliar with, with, with the book of Ruth, you're actually, I think, at an advantage this morning, because the power and the tension of the moment that we will find ourselves in as we work our way through this book will be fresh to you. 
And so if you have read the book of Ruth, or you've been a Christian for a long time, and this story is very familiar to you, and you've done 14 Bible studies on it, uh, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do something that might be hard for you and us, is we're going we're gonna to get into this story, and we're going to feel the weight. In fact, I think that will be very important for us to feel the weight of the story as it progresses. Now, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read and stop and explain away, and then at the end of this, we have just three brief principles or truths that I see that come from Ruth chapter 1. And so before I read, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand as we launch out into our study of Ruth. Father, we do come to you now with great gratitude for the Bible, which we hold to be the completely true Word of God. It is your divine word that you breathe out to us through, through men over the centuries. By your Holy Spirit, you preserved it for us today so that it would be profitable for us, that it would show us your way, so that it would show us Christ. And even in this Old Testament story of Ruth, God, there is, there is something that you want to show us about your providence and ultimately about redemption in Christ. Lord, help us. By your Holy Spirit, would you come into this room and would you give us understanding so that we might span the centuries and make this ancient true story of Ruth apply to our own very lives so that we might look up and see you as we walk through trial and suffering and we might turn away from our idols and trust in you. Lord, help me. I feel so insufficient to speak on this incredible truth it comes from this book. So would you help me? Would you give my friends here grace to even hear your truth in the midst of my frailty? And Lord, I pray that ultimately today you would speak to us, that Christians would be stirred in their affections for Jesus and walk away with a great trust in your providence. And people in this room who have not yet trusted in Christ, Lord, would you do the greatest miracle of all? And would you call that which is dead to be alive? so that we might have faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And what, just to give you kind of a flow of the chapter here, the first five verses set the scene of the suffering that is the backdrop of the story of Ruth. And then verses 6 through the end of the first chapter give us the contrasting responses of this lady named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. By the way, Ruth is, is the, uh, it's the only book in the Old Testament that's named after a non-Jew. We'll read about that in a second. Ruth is a Moabite, and it's one of only two books, I think, in the whole Bible that are named after a woman. And so the themes of God's providence, the themes of the nobility of manhood and biblical womanhood, and the theme of redemption are going to jump from this book as we spend these next four weeks in it. So let's read in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now let's stop there and just to kind of orient ourselves to where we are. 
It says there in the first couple words that this was the time when the judges ruled. So where are we in the redemptive storyline of the Bible? We're very early on in it. So we have you know, Genesis, the creation, and then we have God forming a people through calling a man named Abram, making him into Abraham and, and, and literally forming his people through his sovereignty, through this man Abraham and creating a nation. And then the rest of the book of Genesis is the story of the formation of this nation and how they, how they uh, have this land that God has given them. But then in their disobedience, they, the end of Genesis, they find themselves in this foreign country of Egypt. And then God raises up a deliverer named Moses, and that's the beginning of Exodus. And Moses delivers his people from Egypt, the Egyptian captivity, and then they cross the Red Sea, and now they're wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness. Moses leads them to the edge of the promised land, which is the end of the first five books of the Bible, which is Deuteronomy. Moses dies, and then the next book of the Bible is Joshua, which is the leader that God raised up after Moses to lead his people into the promised land, and so they are in the land that God had promised. And then Joshua dies, and this strong leader's gone now, and the people start to do, they just start to live wild and crazy. And now they're in this time of judges, where God would rise, raise up a judge. This is before the kings. This is before uh, King David and Solomon. And there was this time of judges, and that's the book in the Bible that precedes Ruth. And so Ruth is a story of this particular family set in this time of Judges. And just to give you an idea of what Judges that time was like in Israel, you just have to flip one page to your left and you see the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And this is what it says. And this really sums up the whole 21 chapters of that book of Judges and what's going on in Israel during this time. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this was kind of a lawless time of debauchery. And the cycle that would happen in Judges is that God, the people would sin and they'd find themselves in just a mess. And so God would, would, would bring a judge to, to sort of get them out of that particular problem. But these judges had their own issues and uh, several of them were pretty good, but most of them were, had, were, were, were very imperfect in their leadership. And then they would, they'd get the people out of the mess and then they'd fall back into the mess and then they'd get out of the mess. And there's just this cycle that repeats itself in Judges. And it was just a time of just great sin and debauchery. In fact, if you just want to be horrified uh, this afternoon, go and read Judges chapter 19. It is a terrible story about somebody who gets chopped up into little pieces and sent into all different parts of the country. I mean, it's horrific. And that's just kind of what's going on in Israel at this time. And this, this story is set in those times. And so this family uh, is from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. There's a famine in the land. And so before we read verse 2, let's just kind of think a little bit about famine. It would, have been, uh, it would have been very natural for Jews that were reading this story, for the Old Testament people of God to read this story, to interpret the famine that is shown here in verse 1 as a judgment for their covenant unfaithfulness. Now, it's hard for us to think about famine because we, we, we don't even think in terms of food shortage. I mean, we freak out when occasionally there's a drought and we have to not water our grass every day, right? We get those little... little flyers from Columbus Waterwork, and we're just frustrated because, you know, I got to reset my little dial to the odd days, you know. 
But here there's a famine in the land, and the people would have naturally interpreted that. In fact, that was one of the consequences that God laid out in His law through Moses in Deuteronomy, that if you're unfaithful to my ways, then I will visit you with the consequences of this. And one of the things that God did in the Old Testament was to bring famine on the land, not as a final judgment on His people, but as a kindness, really, even through trial, to cause them to wake up and repent. And so as the, as the Jewish people in the Old Testament are reading this beautiful story of Ruth, they would have immediately interpreted this famine as the consequences of the unfaithfulness of God's people. And these, this family in particular is from Bethlehem, which ironically is the city of David, and then later becomes the birthplace of Christ. And so right away, even in the first sentence, you realize that something is kind of stirring here. Something very, very important is going on in this story. Ironically, the word Bethlehem means the house of bread. And now because of their unfaithfulness, there is no bread, and they have to go to this place called Moab. Now don't miss this. Moab is not just another name of a place in the Bible that they just happen to stop. Moab, I mean, as, a, as, a, as an Old Testament reader of this story, Moab would have jumped out to them. They would have shrieked literally that this family went to this place called Moab. What, wh- who are the Moabites? The Moabites was this race of people that started in Genesis chapter 19 as the result of Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. It was the result of his incestuous relationship with his daughter. And that's how these Moabite this Moabite group of people begin. And then this group of people called the Moabites forms, and through the rest of the Old Testament, they become one of the primary antagonists of God's people. They're constantly at odds with Israel, mistreating Israel. In fact, Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25 are a story of this antagonism between Israel and these people called the Moabites. They actually hired this sorcerer to, uh, to, to uh, issue sorceries against Israel. It's just this crazy story. And then in Numbers chapter 25, we see that the men, the young men of Israel, were seduced by these women of Moab who were debased in their carnality and in their sexuality and were drawing the young men of Israel away from the true God through their sensuality because of their licentiousness and their carnality. And so for, so for the Jewish reader of this story of Ruth, that they would go to that place is just, it's, be, it's beyond unthinkable. I, I don't have a, I don't have a, a sort of a parallel for us today because we don't have a, an enemy like that that has been so has been so uh, just antagonistic for us as, as maybe modern-day Americans. But just think of, of just the shame of having to go to this place that has been such a thorn in Israel's side. And so we pick back up in verse 2, and it says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Remember, get this, don't miss this. They have left the land, the promised land, in particular Judah, Bethlehem, because of the consequences of covenant unfaithfulness, which brought famine in the land. And instead of crying out in repentance to God for Him to provide for them, it seems very clearly that their first reaction was to flee outside of God's 
promised land to them, not just to anywhere, but to this place of absolute debauchery called Moab. And they stayed there. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. Before we move on to verse 6, and we see the contrasting responses of Naomi and Ruth to this decade of despair, we need to let this sit down on us here a little bit. This is not just the historical narrative of a difficult time in the life of a particular family that made it into the Bible. There's a lot going on here in these five verses. These people have got, of God have forsaken God's call to repentance and have gone to this enemy of Israel. And now to compound that, these sons, the husband has died. We don't know why he's died. It doesn't give us any reason why. Was it because God was... I, we just know that he's, he's dead now, which now makes this wife, Naomi, vulnerable. And now her husband, her, her sons, marry Moabite wives. Can you imagine the shame in that? Can, has, has, your, has your teenage kid ever come home with somebody that you didn't approve of? Oh, come on. I know it's happened once or twice. <laughs> I mean, the only analogy I can think of is when I came here to Fort Benning, and in my, one of my first Sundays here, I met Jennifer and her family. They invited me to lunch, and I wasn't going to pass down a free lunch. In other words, take a soldier to lunch. You, you may not have a daughter to marry them off to, but take a soldier to lunch. And the reason I accepted that lunch is because they had a cute daughter. But anyway, that's another story. But I went, I went to lunch with them, and they asked me for where I was from. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm from the country of California. And immediately, I could see that just this kind of wall went up between me and my future in-laws. And it was kind of, well, uh, you know, just kind of kept me at arm's length until later on in the conversation when I kind of told them, hey, well, I mean, I don't necessarily see myself settling back in California. I guess I could live here. This is good. There's actually trees here. People speak English. It's a great place. I like it. (laughs) And then the walls went down. But I can imagine just on some level my in-laws having to deal with the fact that their, their, their daughter had married somebody from California. But, I mean, just, just think about the shame here. Right? The shame that's going on that your sons would marry somebody from this group of people who have been such a thorn in Israel's side. And then those sons die. They didn't have any children. And barrenness in the ancient world had much more significance than it does even today, as difficult as that is. And I realize there are people in this church that are, that are, that are wrestling with those issues, but this was an issue of physical safety. This was an issue of of the perpetuation of your identity and your inheritance. And so to not have any children and to be a female widow and then to have two female Moabite daughters-in-law because your sons have died made you vulnerable to a world where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. I mean, they could just maybe if they had to leave, venture around, and who knows, some some, group of people might just come and take them and rape them and and, and, and kill them. They had no protectors, and they had no line to grow and take their inheritance. And so the, the vulnerability and the despair that Ruth and her two daughter and daughters-in-law find themselves in, even in these first five verses, is huge. 
been a decade of despair, a decade of tragedy and suffering, incredible pain, compounded with sin and embarrassment. And so let that sort of color us with grace-filled lenses as we read now Ruth's or Naomi's reaction and her interpretation of these events. Let's go to verse 6. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Listen to this now in verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Can you imagine the intensity of that scene? Verse 10, they reply to her. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. (laughs) And then something really incredible happens in verse 11. Naomi builds an argument for them as to why they should not go with her back to Bethlehem. And it's a very convincing argument, really. Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And as we read these sentences, you'll get a a glimpse into the mindset and the interpretation that Naomi has made of these events over the past decade. Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter. Listen to the the force of her language. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi dissuades them to go with her, and she sends them back. She's encouraging them to just go back to their Moabite Moabite way of life, to their Moabite father and mother, to their find a Moabite man, go back to your false gods. Strange thing for a Jewish person to say who believed in the one and true God of the Bible. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. That word clung is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 in the Hebrew where uh, it says that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto him a wife. And so there's this incredible intense language going on here where Ruth is literally clinging. She is giving her heart and life and her future to this relationship with her mother-in-law and the hope that it might hold. In verse 15, Naomi again tries to dissuade Ruth and she says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
So friends, I mean, that's just not another little chance or, 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 or attempt by Naomi to dissuade Ruth. But here she is telling her as a person of God, as a Jew, as one of God's chosen people in the Old Testament who, regardless of whether she was devout or whatever her sense was or how, however religious she was, she certainly understood herself as one of the true and living God's people. And she had allowed this situation that had befallen her over this past decade to cause her to even just dissuade somebody from even coming back to this place of Bethlehem where this Moabite Gentile might have an opportunity to come to live in the covenant of God's people. She doesn't care about anything at that moment. She just wants everybody away from her. Friends, that is a, that's an incredible thing for a person in the Old Testament, a person of God, to do, to dissuade somebody from coming to be with God's people. In verse 16, one of the most beautiful passages, maybe the highlight passage of this particular book, the verse that people think of when they think of Ruth, the verse that is ironically quoted at weddings a lot. And if you read this at your wedding, don't be discouraged. I think it's a beautiful sentiment. But really, what's about to be said here by Ruth is not something that is, is in the biblical context between a husband and wife, but it's between a daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Can you imagine the, just the intensity of that scene where this Moabitess daughter-in-law who has, in the 10 years that she has hitched up with this family who claims to be the true people of God, has seen nothing but despair, nothing but tragedy, nothing but pain. And she's got this, this weeping, wailing Jewish mother-in-law who is the epitome of discouragement, not a good witness. This is, this is not a good evangelistic effort that Naomi is putting on here to her daughter-in-law to get her to turn to the true God. But yet in the midst of everything being stacked against her, not only the circumstances, but also the attitude of the one that she is hitched to, Ruth somehow, which we'll look at in just a moment, cuts through all that and says, makes a decision that this is who I want to be. I want to be with you, and I want to be with your God. Friends, this is, not, this is not a romance novel here. This is not a syrupy moment. This would get cut from the script if this were a Hallmark Movie Channel Lifetime Movies for Women Network deal. This would not make it. This is not wise. This flies in the face of wisdom. <laughs> Naomi is urging her to make the more pragmatic, wise choice in the eyes of the circumstances and just good prudence. Go back. Why would you follow me around? I'm like the black cat that walked under the ladder. But yet, Ruth makes a decision to follow Naomi and her God. Why? Why? Right away, friends, we see that something is up in this story. Something unique here is going on. 
Verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. What was going through Naomi's mind? I mean, was she, was she in a sense looking out for Ruth because she realized she had nothing to offer Ruth? Was she afraid of the journey back to Bethlehem from Moab, thinking that, hey, maybe we're going to get overtaken by some bandits and raped and killed? Was she embarrassed about the prospects of taking this Moabitess back to her people? Was she maybe trying to protect them? Were her motives mixed? I'm sure that they were. But eventually, Naomi gives in. And they go back to Bethlehem. And that's where we are in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Can you imagine just the whispering in the town square? Is that Naomi? She's the one that left? Can you imagine what was said about her in this past decade? Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the embarrassment? Can you imagine just the just to having to just kind of bite the bullet on this one and just walk through the city square and hear everybody whisper about you? Is this Naomi? And she said to them, listen to these words in verse 20. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. You see, friends, Naomi's name originally meant pleasure or sweetness. And she says, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because the Lord has obviously been bitter with me. In verse 22, we see this glimmer of hope. We see this glimmer of hope that will point us and direct us for the rest of the book. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came, and here's this glimmer of hope, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. In other words, this mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law who have been in this unspeakable decade of despair and famine and death and sadness and vulnerability are coming back at just the right time when the fortunes of God's people and as we shall read, their fortunes will change dramatically as the barley harvest is about to begin. Three lessons from this first chapter of Ruth. The first is a lesson about how Naomi interpreted these events. The second is a lesson about how Ruth interpreted the events, the events. And then the third is just an overarching truth. Lesson number one from Naomi's reaction is that bitterness blinds us. Bitterness blinds us, friends. Naomi interpreted this terrible decade to be a sure sign that God was against her. It caused her to be self-absorbed. It caused her to look inward. It was all her, me. God has done this to me. It 
caused her to miss an opportunity to make much of God, to display how God is better than temporal circumstances. It shrunk her view of God. You see what Naomi attributed to God? Bitterness and anger. She said, God has done this to me. The Lord's hand is against me. And so in one sense, Naomi's theology was half right. She understood well that God was totally sovereign. But she misunderstood that God is also good. And she interpreted these events as being God's judgment against her. She she saw God to be mean-spirited and a God who dealt in karma, as a God who was punishing people for their sins, and that was the final judgment there. And friends, make no mistake, God does discipline his people, and we suffer the consequences of sins. But those consequences, even of our sin, this famine, this death of her husband and her sons, friends, for God's people, the consequences that we suffer from our sins are by no means the final statement of God. And she was interpreting the consequences of their rebellion, their lack of faithfulness, as the final answer that all God had to say about this. And it caused her to be bitter. And it reduced her view of God to a mere tribal deity. She just saw God as just kind of her cultural ethics. She said, go back to your gods, Orpah and Ruth. Go back to your gods, as if there's just some sort of equal playing field here. Go, I got gods, you got gods. My, gods have, my God ha- obviously hasn't done well for me. Go back to your gods which I think is the way a lot of American Christians just kind of view Christianity. It's just sort of our Western society ethic. Naomi allowed bitterness to blind her. The second point about Ruth's reaction is that faith frees us. Faith frees us. Now, before we misinterpret that, let me say a few things about Ruth's faith that freed her and ultimately Naomi and becomes the mechanism that God uses to set up this beautiful story of redemption later on in the book. What I mean by Ruth's faith freeing us is that Ruth, despite circumstances that were stacked against her, trusted in the God of Israel, and this freed her from from this world around her, freed her from from, from her past, from her family, from her false gods, from her security. And she, because of her faith in God, was able to make a radical, risk-taking decision where the, the, the grip of this world didn't have Ruth in, her, in, in its grip. She was able to be free from that and do this incredible thing. And as we, we will see at the end of this book, actually become one of the most important figures in the Old Testament and literally in the redemptive line of Jesus. I didn't want to skip that far forward ahead, especially for those of you that maybe haven't read Ruth, but I I just couldn't resist. (laughs) Naomi's faith freed her, but friends, don't, don't misread the first chapter of Ruth or the whole book of Ruth as a sort of moral tale that just literally sets a bad example versus a good example. Oh, boys and girls, don't be like Naomi. 
She eventually comes around at the end of the book, but don't be like Naomi, but be like Ruth. See, Ruth dug down deep inside, and she was like the little engine that could, and I think I can, I think I can, and, and she dug down deep, and there was something in Ruth that was just intrinsic to her, and she did better. She ex- exercised faith, so you boys and girls can exercise faith too. Friends, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is a picture of divine, sovereign grace. Why did Ruth follow Naomi, and why did Orpah turn back? Friends, the text is silent, and the Bible oftentimes presents us with these, these, these juxtapositions, these contrasts of some people who follow God and some people who don't follow God. Friends, why is that? The answer never exists within the person. The answer always exists outside of that person in the good grace of God, friend. And so you should see this picture as an incredible encouragement to you if you find yourself as a person far from God. Ruth was a Moabitess from a people who hated God, a people who punished God's people, who then, when she hitched her train to God's people, went through a terrible decade, but yet even then, a person who is not a candidate for faith in God has faith in God. Friends, where does that come from? Is it because Ruth was better or stronger than anybody else? No, it was because of the good grace of God, friends. So no matter where you are, this this story of Ruth and her faith teaches us that God's hand is not short to save. He can reach down even into the depth of despair to a person's life like Ruth and scoop her out. It's a picture of his sovereign grace. So that no matter where where we find ourselves in trial, we can see that example and realize that God delights in saving people who can't save themselves. And this faith freed Ruth. Now friends, I don't want to jump ahead to the Old Testament, to the end of this book in the Old Testament, but I can. I do, I do want to jump ahead to the New Testament because there's another way that I don't want you to misread Ruth. I don't want you to misread Ruth's faith that God in his sovereign kindness gave Ruth to to think that, okay, if I just have faith, everything's going to kind of eventually work out. Friends, Ruth's faith was not just a sort of general faith and just sort of things eventually working out. Her faith was a faith in the specific God of Israel. And this becomes a sort of Old Testament picture of faith in the redeeming God of Israel, that then becomes developed more for us in the New Testament that we see as Jesus' work on the cross, right? And so Ruth's picture of faith in the Old Testament isn't just a faith. It's not just a faith that things are eventually going to get better. It's a specific faith in the God who redeems. And now, looking back on this story, as people who have the blessing of living in the New Covenant age, we know that this is just a divine pointer towards faith in God's work on the cross, in what Jesus did for us. So friends, the story, the moral of the story of, of having faith that frees us isn't just, oh, we just be people that kind of believe that eventually things work out, friends. No, friends, that's not the case. The moral of the story of Ruth's faith is that she trusted in the one true God. And now looking back, we know that that means that we trust in what God did through Christ on the cross. And so friends, if you are not, hear me, hear me on this. If you, if you have thought yourself a Christian just because you went to church 
or you're just a person that generally has faith, or you're not a Christian, understand what the crux, the apex, the core of the Christian message is about faith. Is that to be a Christian means that we are dreadfully separated from God as human beings that have all rebelled against Him. And that sin, that rebellion, has brought consequences, just like it brings consequences in Ruth. And the consequences for our sin is separation from God forever and His right and just judgment. And the only thing that can reconcile us back to the God of the Bible is now faith in what His Son did on the cross for us. To realize that we cannot trust in our own goodness, we can't trust in our own works, but we can only trust in what Jesus did on the cross as the the sacrifice, the the mediating work between us and a holy God. And that's what Ruth's faith is pointing us to now with the benefit of perspective as we read this story. And so friends, don't misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. It's not just to be a person who kind of thinks that eventually things work out. It is to trust in what God has done in Christ as the only, the only thing that can make you right with the holy God of the universe. And Ruth becomes a picture of that. And do you realize what an encouragement it is that it would come through somebody like Ruth? Because what God is trying to say through us amongst the many things that he's saying is that if he saves people like Ruth, then he can save a person like you and me. He can save anybody. In fact, he delights in doing that. He doesn't just save Jews. He doesn't just save people that are born in the Bible. He doesn't just save upper middle class white people. He saves people for his glory and their good. He saves because he saves. And he reaches down into the depths of human tragedy where there would be no other glimmer for hope. And he saves people, friends. That's what Ruth's faith teaches us. So right now, if you've bought into the lie that you are beyond God's reach, you are being lied to right now, friend. Look up and see Jesus who reaches down into the depths of a Moabite woman and he saves her. Look down into the depths of your life and realize that God can save you too. And he does that by bringing your heart alive, even through this word that I'm preaching to you today. And he gives you life. He gives you faith. He gives you repentance, which is a word that means you turn away from yourself and you turn to God. He gives it to you as a gift, friends. He doesn't ask you to muster it up within yourself. He gives it to you as a gift, just like he gave it to Naomi. So friends, right now, if you realize that you're not a Christian or you've never heard that message before or understood like that, all you need to do is not look down within yourself, but look to Jesus and see him and trust in him. Right now, you don't need to recite a prayer. You don't need to memorize an acronym. You don't need to sign a sheet. You don't need to do anything but look to Christ right now, friends. God is saving some of you right now, I believe, as you look to Jesus like Ruth looked to the redeeming God of Israel. And finally, the first chapter of Ruth teaches us that God is both sovereign and good. God is both sovereign and good. (laughs) As we reflect on the events that happened to us as a country 10 years ago and the suffering and the despair of this past decade, think about all the young men that have, young men and women that have come through this church that have been deployed and 
even deployed right now, Nick Prevet, one of the guys that's just been um, just such a part of this church over the years now in Afghanistan. Think about one of his, <laughs> I think about before Nick and his buddies that were at the church three or four years ago, before they went to ranger school, uh, Jennifer and I and Reynolds and Danielle had all these guys over for steaks at our house, feed them like their last supper before they went to ranger school. <laughs> and um, one of those guys, one of those guys, who'd been to the church a couple times, just a young infantry lieutenant, a couple years later, Nick called me and said, hey, uh, remember, remember that guy Larkin that was at your house that one night? He just heard that he lost a hand and a foot in Afghanistan. Just got married. He survived, but uh, terrible injuries. Think about just a decade of just despair and war and suffering. And friends, when we are faced with suffering, it can lead us to question God's goodness. And it can cause us to be like Naomi and frame God as sovereign but not good. Some of us in America, we have this weak theology and we think that God is somehow good but he's not sovereign. As if he's got these good intentions for us. But oh, sometimes the, the devil wins out and, and that really the story of Christianity is that, that Jesus barely hits a free throw at the end and we kind of win. And sometimes God wins and sometimes God loses just depending on whether you have enough faith. Friends, that is not the picture of the God of the Bible. Yes, he uses faith, but he is sovereign and good. And how these two things mix and how God could providentially be both good and sovereign, friends, is a mystery that on this side of eternity we will never fully understand. But it is a clear biblical picture, friends, even as we are standing a decade after the most terrible thing that could happen to our nation to, for us as biblical people, for us who have faith in the God of the Bible to affirm that God is both good and sovereign because that is clearly what the Bible teaches and that is what the story of Ruth teaches us. 500 or so years ago during the Protestant Reformation, some of the early reformers came up with this confession. It's called the Belgic Confession of Faith. I've read this, I think, to you before, but Article 13 of that confession is the church's statement on the doctrine of God's providence. I think it is an incredibly powerful, biblical, and beautiful statement. Let me read it to you now. The Belgic Confession of Faith, the doctrine of God's providence. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God, listen to this, friends, because we can, right there, we can think, okay, God is sovereign. We can take it Naomi's way and think that he's capricious or bad or mean-spirited. But this confession says, yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with the sins that occurred. How does that work out? How is God sovereign over sin, but not culpable for it? Friends, again, this side of eternity, we will never be able to fully answer that. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and the wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend, but in all humility and reverence. Oh, that's a good sentence for pompous Americans like us. 
But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly Father. Friends, that sentence is hard to swallow, but it is filled with biblical truth. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control so that none of the hairs on their heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds and check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, some Greek philosophers of the time, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Friends, that is a robust statement of God's sovereignty. But don't believe it because some Protestant reformers said it. Believe it because the Bible speaks. So just very quickly, I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1. Believe that God is both sovereign or good, not because the Reformers said it, but believe it because of the Bible that the Reformers believed. And this is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. This is God's word. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according, listen to this, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works famine in Bethlehem centuries ago according to the counsel of his will. God works every instance of our life somehow, mysteriously, providentially to the counsel of his will. God works wars. God works every tragedy. God works sickness. God works strain in marriage. God works even my own sin, not being culpable of it, but God somehow mysteriously is so much more God than I can even comprehend that he somehow works it to serve his glorious end. That's the Bible, friends. And then he goes on in verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him so that you would see a God, see friends, who is both sovereign and good, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Verse 22, listen to this. And he put all things, either all things means all things or it means nothing at all. And he put all things, famine in Bethlehem, Harris in the Middle East, cancer, strife. He put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Friends, 
what Ruth 1 and the rest of this beautiful story wants to teach us is that God is both sovereign and good. I end with this beautiful poem written by a man named William Cooper. His name is spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper, and he was a friend of John Newton, who most of us know as the British pastor who wrote maybe the most famous hymn in our English church culture, Amazing Grace. William Cooper lived in the mid-1700s, and he suffered with mental illness. He was a great hymn writer and poem, and he tried to take his own life several times, I think three times, and was committed to whatever they kind of had as a sort of insane asylum at the time. And John Newton, who was his pastor, took William Cooper to live with him and really nursed him in his latter years through his mental illness and sickness. And from William Cooper's pen come many of the great hymns of the church. And William Cooper wrote this poem that I think has kind of become sort of an idiomatic expression in American culture about how God moves in mysterious ways. And people misinterpret that. But it's come, that phrase comes from this poem that William Cooper wrote. I'll read it to you and then I'll be done. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Friends, God makes it plain. He is sovereign and good. And he works all things together in our lives. Not just for our temporal pleasure, but in a twist of his kindness. He even allows terrible despair to come in our lives. So that the great theologian J.I. Packer once said, we might take our hands from the things of this earth, earth and attach our hands to himself. In fact, Packer says this, he says, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and pain to detach their hands from the things of this earth and detach those hands to himself. Friends, when suffering comes, if you're in the middle of it right now, turn from this world and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty truths. They offend our man-centered sensibilities. 
Would you give us grace now to digest this most mysterious of all truths that you are both sovereign and good. Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room who have already believed in Jesus and who have a new heart in Christ, would you rouse us from our addictions to comforts and idols? Would you lift our eyes from these 80 years? Would you stir in our hearts this first love, this faith like Ruth that's just radical and risk-taking that is willing to die because you are all that matters. God, would you, would you stir that in us? Would you jolt us from our, from our laziness and our idleness and our self-centeredness? Lord, for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, so they came into this room not yet trusting in you, God, by your sovereign grace, would you not cause them to look inward? Would you not let them leave this room thinking, oh, I need to be better or do better? But God, would you bring them to such a place of futility in themselves that they, they have no other recourse but to look up and see you because you delight in giving life the people who cannot save themselves. Lord, would you give them the gift of faith so that they might see Jesus, that he is their only hope, that his work on the cross, his death for our sin and his resurrection, his victory over sin and death is the only hope we have to be made right with you by trusting in that alone is what makes us your child. Lord, would you do that? Would you give them that gift right now? I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.